What have you asked yourself? What's the point of my life? What am I here for? From the time we're born, we're fed the story that life is random, a product of chance. But if that's true, why do we long for so much more? Why does it seem like the human soul is made for meaning, designed for direction? Here's why. God created you on purpose for a purpose, and you are empowered for a specific focus in a particular place among certain people. Let's explore how you are wired by God. You guys excited for this series? Let's go. Well, we're continuing in uh, this series, and today we're going to talk about being made on purpose for a purpose. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, uh, Jason talked about this idea called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And basically, if you weren't here, running definition is this, that uh, it's God's invitation to harness the created order and bring about beautiful culture for human flourishing. How's that for a mission statement for your life? Look, God is a purposeful and intentional God that spoke into the nothing and brought forth everything. And as a creator, he then made us as sub-creators so that we wouldn't just like absorb the goodness of God, but we would actually extend it, that we would harness the created order, whether that's through uh, being a barista or running a business or running a ministry or whatever it is that you do week after week, man, like we're actually invited in. There was a, a young gal and uh, she was born essentially into homelessness. Uh, literally, she, it, she tells her story and she says that like after I was born, we went straight to a campground. And uh, so she's growing up on the streets of Portland. Her dad in short order, leaves, and now she's living a life of homelessness as a little girl, essentially on her own, and, and just so you know, the streets of Portland are not, are not nice to little kids, and ultimately, she got drawn in her early teen years into exploitation, and um, she was abused and struggled there. She was using, she found herself in a place of deep darkness, but ultimately, God stepped in. She was literally high and pregnant. And one day she describes a scene as she's walking down the road, doesn't know God, doesn't know anything about the Bible, all this stuff, and she falls to the ground. And you say, well, she was on drugs. But in this instant, God introduces himself to her. And he says, man, I made you for a purpose, and I love you, and I want to know you. And in this whole experience, she says that God actually told her, you're going to ferociously protect this child. And she absolutely does. Uh, She begins a relationship with Jesus. Later down the road, she gets training. And she uh, basically ends up becoming a leader of an organization. Turns out that this little homeless girl was actually extremely gifted by God with intellect and wisdom and knowledge. And so her life is redeemed by the Savior himself. And so you know what she does with her talent? She turns around and says, I remember what it was like to be homeless. I remember what it was like to be on the streets of Portland. And so she actually builds an organization called Breaking Cycles, which takes uh, the, the tools we have here in Portland, coffee and bikes. And they teach uh, formerly homeless youth job skills so they can break the cycle of homelessness over their lives. Amen? Is that not cool? 
That's who our God is. He's a redeemer. And here's, what, here's what's awesome about that. I need you to see this. That he takes those of us who have meaninglessness in our life, a feeling, a deep sense of our purposelessness, and he instills an established purpose and meaning for us. But he doesn't just leave us there. He turns around and says, now you go instill purpose, my purpose for other people. And that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the cultural or creative mandate, that your work actually matters, that you are called to like extend meaning and purpose into the lives of others. And so whether that's some big organization, like doing some very inspiring good, or that's literally going to the coffee shop, like I mentioned, or that's uh, raising your kids, or that's being a teacher or being an electrician or whatever that is, like God actually cares about this stuff. And so here's the question that we need to ask, right? Just very logical. Like, so, like, what's mine? Like, what do I do? I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but what I want you to see in this passage we're going to dig into is that God has a specific purpose for you, and it's often that our design, the way we're made, actually leads to our direction. And so we're going to open up to Psalm 139. If you have a Bible, open that up. If not, we're going to have verses on the screen. There should be Bibles somewhere in this church. If you see it and you don't own a Bible, would you just take that home? It won't be stealing. Like, that's our gift to you. We love you. We want you to have a Bible. And so with that said, let's open up to Psalm 139. Now, for some context, uh, this is a psalm that's attributed to a man named David. And uh, who David is, is David is a king over Israel. And David had, uh, obviously, he's one of the greatest kings, and, and so he had the obvious blessing of God, undeniable blessing of God on his life. But also, his life is a little bit complicated, uh, just to, uh, to put it lightly. But one of the reasons his life is so very complicated is because he was chased for a number of years by the prior king of Israel who wanted to end his life. And so, like, this is the guy, and we think that he may have written this psalm actually in that context, but either way, the idea here is, is obvious that he's clinging to a God who created him. So let's open our Bibles and look at Psalm 139, and, and as we do, here's the first thing we're actually going to see here in these first, like, this first stanza, is that actually if we're going to live out this cultural mandate, if we're going to be effective, effectiveness requires nearness. Verse 1, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Now, what we're looking at here is uh, the big idea of the passage right out of the gate. A lot of times, it's actually how the Psalms operate. Uh, you, we even take the title sometimes from the, from the first line here. But what's his big idea? He is saying, O oh Lord, to, and this is God's personal name, Yahweh. This is God, the, the, the revered name. They actually replace it with capital L-O-R-D because they reverence him. But this is his very personal name. And, God, and here the psalmist is looking to that personal God with his personal name. And he says, you have searched me and you know me. And then he uses something called a merism, which is basically referring to like ends of the spectrum to reference the whole. And what I mean is like, if you were to say, that you uh, cleaned the house top to bottom. Do you mean that you were scrubbing the ceiling? Like, no, you mean I, I just cleaned the entire house, and why didn't you help me, you know? You're like, this is what we're talking about with the marism. And so he's saying, you know when I sit down, but also when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and also my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, like he knows our words. He's talking about himself here, but this also implies us, that, that God knows the totality of who you are. And let's, if we look now at the details, he's saying like he knows everything, right? That's his first point. But when you look at the details here, it's also interesting. I want you to notice, like, God is intimately acquainted with a few things about you. Number one, your patterns. It says in verse two, your patterns. Uh, so, th- so think like, man, like, what are your daily habits? You get up and, like, brush your teeth. Like, God's like, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> like, or if you don't brush your teeth, it's like a totally different sermon for you. But, like, the, the truth is, like, he knows your patterns. Like, he knows your local coffee shop that you go to regularly. Like, he knows your order. Like, this is our God. And how good does that feel when they know your order at the coffee shop? Like, God knows you even more than that. Number two, he knows your thoughts. Like, these are the things that you think internally. These are the things that you're wrestling through right now. The plans, the strategies, your budget. Like, even the random things. Like, like God actually knows that about the psalmist. And he knows that about you. Number three, your path and your ways. Look, where are you taking your life? Is God any part of that? The psalm, I think, implies is that like he wants to be. He knows what's happening. Like He wants to have that level of intimacy with you. And then number four, your words before you speak. You ever like struggle to articulate something? Like, like half my job is talking all the time, right? And then I go home and I'm like trying to explain something to my wife and she's like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, can you just try to make sense for two minutes? I'm like, ah. Like, we struggle to even articulate some things sometimes, and, and those moments are hard, and you're like, ah, I wish I could just wrap words around this. Like, God doesn't even need you to do that. Like, God knows you at the level of your thoughts, and he knows what you mean by what you say. This is a detailed consideration of the knowledge of God on your life. And that's what he's getting at here. And, and what I'm implying here is that if you're going to be effective in doing anything for God, you actually need to know the God that knows you. And this taps into something very deep, like this longing that each and every one of you has, that you want to be known. That's actually a need of your soul. Uh, psychology would bear this out, but the truth is here in the, our Bibles. I remember uh, moving to Sacramento, California. Uh, my wife and I were going to be part of this church plant and everything. And Sacramento is like kind of cool, you know? Like it's not Portland cool where there's like hip vibes, although Portland has some struggles right now. Um, <laughs> love you if you're from Portland. But the truth is, like, Sacramento uh, is cool because it has this thing called the sun. <laughs> Just like, what? Wow! Like, and, like, you get warm. It's like a whole thing over there. But as much as we liked Sacramento in that sense, like, there was a difficult part of Sacramento, and it was like, People just didn't know us that well. You know, we like just parachuted in. We started meeting people and all this stuff. And I'm an extrovert. I love to meet people. I, I just, I want to meet all of you on Sunday, right? Like I was like, who are you? Like, let's go. That's, a, that's like me. But the truth is you actually need a depth of relationship with some people. Like, like you can't just have the surface level. Like we literally be making jokes with people like, ah, say something sarcastic or whatever. And they'd be like, whoa, like, are you offended? Like, no, bro, like, like I'm literally joking around. And they're like, oh, okay. And it's like this weirdness. You're like, oh, why does nobody know me? They don't know your story. It takes time to get to know people. That's my point. And so there's this value of like staying somewhere. 
and letting people know who you are and all this stuff. But, but here's the deal. Fast forward a few years, uh, you know, several years later to just a couple weeks ago, and uh, we are sitting with two of my uh, best like, buddies that I love, uh, this guy, Skylar Elmer and his wife, Stephanie and uh, Tyler and Hannah Nobes. If you go to Rise, you probably know they lead worship here and just good friends. And here's why I love these guys, because they're both guys that I've hung out with, and I don't know if you have friends like this, since high school. <laughs> right? And so, like, they know all the good and also the bad, and, like, we just, like, we have this friendship, and I've shared this story numerous times here that, like, like back when I was in high school, and I just became a believer in all this stuff, we used to, like, my dad let me use his Astro van, and we used to load, like, my friends from high school and acquaintances, too, that didn't even know me that well, like, into my dad's Astro van illegally and drive them to youth group, even if they didn't know they were going to youth group. And so that's like my, my style of evangelism. And these two guys were like the knuckleheads who were helping me like close the door and lock them in. Like this is Skylar and Tyler. We're like, we're taking these dudes to youth group. So we have like all these like gnarly stories together. And I just love these guys. And there's something so warm and so comforting about knowing people who like literally know your whole story. You know what I'm talking about? Those friends that just you, you click and you get each other. Well, this, this pales in comparison to the way that God knows you. Like God was there before you were there and made you and knows you and knows you in every detail, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And there's something necessary about that. And that's why he says poetically in verse seven here, look at your text. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He's like entertaining this idea of like running from God. Is he doing that because he's scared of God? Well, God's a big God, and there's things that are enormously ferocious in God, but that's not his point here. He's saying, like, man, let's, let's, let's play with an experiment in our minds here. What if I tried to run from God? What would happen? Verse 8. Look, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In the Jewish mind, there's three layers of space, right? There's the space above, the heavens above, there's the earth below, and there's Sheol, the place of the dead beneath. And he's using poetry here, isn't he? You guys ever sit around drinking tea and like just reading poetry? No? I don't either, but <laughs> here we are. But he's using poetic language. He's like, man, like if I, if I was to run to the heavens, like if I ran there, you know who'd be there? God would still find me there. In the depths of hell, like God would find me there. If I take, now look at this, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, what's he talking about there? It's kind of interesting language, like uh, the, the wings of the morning. Well, that's a reference to the sunrise, right? So from the east. And then where's the sea? In the Jewish mind, it's to the, to the west. From the east to the west, from height to depth, like even there your hand shall lead me. Listen to that intimacy. Your right hand, now look at this, shall hold me. Who, who holds you? Well, it's God. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And maybe you came here today and you're like, I'm coming here because I have questions, but my whole life I've been running from God. Like I've been, been trying to hide in this darkness. The psalmist comes in and says, like, even the darkness is not dark with him. God is even chasing you there. I love this. This actually is echoed in John chapter 1, talking about Jesus. And he essentially, John, the gospel author, essentially says that Jesus invaded the darkness 
and the darkness itself couldn't overcome him. That's how light he is. And this is the nearness of Jesus. And I don't care if you've known Jesus your whole life or you have hated the thought of religion. The truth is Jesus is chasing after you. There's another echo of this passage in Ephesians chapter 3 where we actually see Paul use similar language. And what does he say? He talks about the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, all this stuff, all of these angles and degrees. And he says, man, I need you to know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because that is how far it goes. And the truth is, if, you, if you're not familiar with Christianity, or even if you are, you need to know this, that that love is represented on the cross for you, where Jesus was stretched out and died for you. He wants nearness in a relationship with you. See, being a Christian isn't even just about like knowing the gospel and sort of moving on. Being a Christian is having a daily and intimate relationship, a nearness with Jesus, being formed and walking with and being held by Jesus. It's a relationship of nearness and dependency. This is not him describing God hunting him down to condemn him. Like we talk about this stuff all the time as, as Christians that there is this sense where God is ferocious and he's a judge and there, there are these pieces to who he is. But the truth is we, we often jump too quickly to that. The, really, God actually wants a relationship with us. That's what the cross is all about. It's nearness. And so you need nearness with Jesus. And that is, it's not dependent on us knowing God. It's that he knew us. And and some of you guys are like, what does that have to do with like, I need to do some stuff because I'm wired for some stuff. Like, why are we spending all this time on the idea of the nearness of Jesus? Here's why I think the text does it. And here's why I think it matters for us. Um, Just playing with this. If you had to ask yourself, like, what kind of people tend to go to rise? Like the demographic, all this stuff, like personalities. Are, are we a people who tend to be more, um, I don't know, like consumer-oriented or a people who tend to be like contributors and doers? We tend to be people that are contributors or doers, right? Like, like what is our mission statement? We exist to rise up and to saturate our whole city with the gospel of Jesus, right? Rise up, saturate our city with the gospel. And so, like, there's a certain kind of person that's drawn to that. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we are just a, a church full of business owners and hustlers and young adults who are like, I'm just going to be involved in every ministry. And, like, we're doers and we get things done. Like, what is one of our highest attended events that we do all year? It's this new thing called Team Night that Jason was just talking about, right? And what is Team Night? It's not, hey, come and like sit and genuflect while we serve you. Team night is like, get out of your seat and go win the city. And here's a leadership talk and some Chick-fil-A, right? Like, go get it done, kids. And like, we go out and we like change the world for Jesus, right? You guys are saying amen, like already. Like, you're just like, this is the message that I want. But here's the truth. That's a good message. We want to do some stuff for Jesus, but we want to be very careful with this. That if our posture and our mindset in the faith is, man, I'm going to go do things for Jesus, but never sit and enjoy the reality and the nearness of Jesus, we're going to be constantly operating for love rather than from love. And we need to know the love of Jesus, the nearness of Jesus. If you don't know him, call unto Jesus today. This is not about our ability to know everything and to be everywhere. No, it's God that knows everything, and it is God who is everywhere. Let me put it this way. God doesn't need you, but God wants you. 
God doesn't need you, but God wants you. And when we understand this, then we're going to operate in our calling. Um, how many of you guys, like, ever, you know, when you were growing up, did that whole, like, take your kid to work day? Anybody do that? I feel like that never gets posted about. Do people, do we do that now? Like, should I be doing this? Like, I don't know. Kids of the 90s, like, we all went to work with our dads, right, or our mom, or whatever you did. And so I remember doing this. And, like, you remember what happened there? Like, you would go to work with your dad, and, like, you get your little, like, lunch sack, and you would go with him, and you'd be like, well, we're going to do some work. Let's get it done. And your dad's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can you sit in this office and try not to break anything? You know what I'm saying? Like, like here is the question about take your kid to work day. Did your dad need you? Like, was that what it was about? Like, no, your dad didn't need you there. Did your dad want you there? Like, also, no. Your mom made him take you. <laughs> like, he was like, please, like, anything. She's like, you got to love your kid. Take him to work. It's my day off, baby. Let's go. Right? That's what happened there. But God is even better than our dads, right? Like, God wants you. God actually wants to bring you. Like, if I were to die tomorrow, heaven forbid, like, I pray that doesn't happen. I want to see my kids grow up. Well, my kids are going to grow up knowing Jesus and being poured into and discipled well with or without me. He invites me, and I get the joy and opportunity participating with him. And so let's walk through just a couple of implications of this. Number one, like when we know this nearness, this level of like scary nearness and goodness of God's presence is intimacy. Are you operating from a place of intimacy with Jesus today? Like if not, like reflect on that and draw near to him. Like open the word this week. Grow with him, grow as a disciple of Jesus, not so that you would earn anything, but because it's already been earned and it's the joy you have of walking with him. Number two is security. Like if we think we're doing things for God or to earn anything from God, we're gonna constantly butt into, now catch this, despair or pride. Because when we're successful, we're like, look how good I'm doing. Look how awesome I am. And that's our security. But if we're not doing well, in weeks that we fail, we're like, gosh, I'm despairing. And we'll do the same thing to other people who fail around us. Uh, number three is identity. And what I mean by this is you are not the summation of what you accomplish, Christian. Like, you are the summation of what God says you are in Jesus. And as we grow in that reality, that's where maturity, spiritual formation happens. And then number four is this has implications for calling calling, which is our whole point, so I should probably get on to that. Here, here's what we're talking about when we say calling. I don't think there's this nebulous, like, you are supposed to marry Sally, and you're supposed to, like, build a business. Like, I don't think there's some, like, thing out there, and we might get it, or we might not. I think God is infinitely more sovereign in control than that. I don't think we can miss a calling, but we can intentionally ask God to, like, lead us into, what am I supposed to do with my life? And uh, if you're asking that question, I want to point you now to verse 13 as we continue through the passage. What verse 13 through 15 has for us is really a key understanding for like helping us wrestle through what should I do with my life, right? Like, should I be a doctor or should I be a lawyer? Um, if you can be either of those, by the way, like you're doing pretty well, <laughs> like, you know. But the truth is like God actually will lead us in some of this. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Now, if you are paying attention to this passage and you uh, like love the Bible, study the Bible, like if that's not you, hang on. But if you love the Bible and you're a person that's reading this and you love doctrine and theology and all this stuff, like these verses are almost uncomfortable. And here's what I mean, because these verses are so extremely affirming of the psalmist in God's view of him that it almost feels like prosperity gospel-ish. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He's like, man, like, like, man, you formed me. You knitted me in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm what? Thank you. Look at this. What do you, he, like, here's what he doesn't say in verse 14. He's not saying, hey, you, like, I praise you for I am depravedly and wretchedly made. Right, my Calvinist brothers. Right? Like, like no, I'm just slime and I'm the worst and all this stuff. Because of what? Because of my inherent sin nature. Listen, we believe in inherent sin nature. It's all biblical. It's all true. And there's another sermon coming for you later on that one, right? The truth is, yeah, like we, we have this. Here's the reality, though. So often when we talk about the gospel, we jump too quickly in our explanation of the good news of Jesus to the reality of our sin and just skip over the whole creation part. We want to jump to this like gospel of like, hey, number one, you're a sinner, okay? And so like you're depraved and you're messed up. No one loves you, okay? And so that's number one. Just get that in your system, then we'll build your identity from there, right? And there's some value to actually contemplating that. But the truth is, the Bible begins not at the fall, but at creation and God's goodness and the way he forms you and the way he likes you. And we actually need to have a full and a robust gospel and understanding of Christianity. And so uh, this, this is actually going to do two things. It's going to upset two different kinds of people. And I don't mean upset because you're mad. I mean, just like it's just uncomfortable. And what I mean, and I'm speaking to myself a little bit, as a conservative Christian in here, you're uncomfortable with this. Like that I should actually reflect on like God likes me. And I'm saying, yeah. Like, like yes, sin. The truth is, before sin, God actually made you on purpose and likes you. Like just sit in that for a moment. You ever contemplated that God might actually like you? It's, it's uncomfortable. As a conservative Christian who cares about doctrine, here's the other group of people, though, that this is uncomfortable for. The conservative Christian who knows right doctrine, but also the person who doesn't like themselves. And what I mean is uh, literally like some of you in here, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, all you see is flaws. You're a perfectionist. Maybe you're even not like a, a woe is me kind of person. Uh, this is for you, if that is you, but like maybe you're even like a driven person or a perfectionist and you want everything to be just right. And so you look at yourself like, I don't like this because it's not perfect, right? You're like me. And I'm like, man, like, God, thanks for making me five foot eight, right? Like, where's the like six foot five? Like, come on, like, what's wrong? Like, so you look at yourself and you don't like it. Lately, this week, um, I was, we have this team that like runs our Instagrams and social media and all this stuff. So we have people that do like youth and young adult social media. Sometimes I get on there and like sneak and look at what's, what's happening. And somebody made this video of like, uh, like all these young adults in our church and it's like music and all the things. It looks fun. And so they post it and a brother in our church sees this and he sees himself. Now, mind you, this is like a young, cool, popular, good looking dude in our church. He's like, what's up? You know, you meet this guy, and you're like, this guy's so fresh. And, like, he, he gets on there, and he's like, bro, I look so ugly, man. And I'm like, oh, like, and I'm just watching this. 
And then I'm like watching, because you could see at the same time as other people who were running the Instagram, like talk with each other on that Instagram. And there's a girl in our ministry who helps run this, and she like jumps on there, and she doesn't like get on there and like encourage him. Like, oh, I just want you to know, like, we love you. She gets on there and full-blown rebukes the brother. <laughs> like, she's like, I just need you to know we ain't doing self-hatred today in the name of Jesus. Like, God made you. And I was like, get him. Get him right now. Like, preach the gospel. She's like, man, God made you. Like, don't, don't reject the creator on this, right? Like, he made you. It's an insult to him. And besides that, like, bro has more hair than me. Like, what are you even talking? Like, chill. Like, you're making it worse for the rest of us, okay? We don't do, here's the deal. God actually likes it. Let me put it this way. Your attributes are not an accident. What he says here is God knitted you together. He's, we, he's woven you together in your mother's womb. That's, that's God did that. Now, he, hear this. Like, when we're considering our calling, we actually pay attention to the way we're made. Because God made us. That's the truth there. There is this beautiful involvement. Now, side note on this, and we don't have time to go into detail here, but this is also why, like, talking about God created humanity and God likes humans, this is, like, we're talking about from the womb here. And so this is why there's no such thing as lesser humans also. Like, we tracking with that? Like, there is no such thing as lesser humans. There's not, like, genetically lesser people, okay? Because I'd probably be one of them, you know? Like, like all human beings, whatever disabilities we struggle with, whatever colors we're born, like, like, all of that stuff is beautiful to God. And he actually likes what he made. Side note over. From the womb, not later. And so, with that said, um, your attributes are not an accident. I want to dig into this metaphor just a little bit, this idea of knitting and weaving. Like, why does he use this metaphor? Any of you guys like hardcore knitters in here? Hardcore knitters? One person, like, almost raised their hand. She was like, oh, no, never mind. Like, I don't knit. <laughs> Crazy. You know? Nobody here knits. You know why you don't knit? It takes too darn long. Like, why not just, like, go to Marshall's, buy the same thing, and it's, like, better done. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and I just joke with my wife all the time because she is, like, a hardcore knitter, bro. So we started calling her Grandma Lindsay because she just, like, I'm going in. You sit there, and you're like, why are you knitting? And I'll actually show you one of these, uh, these, these things that she knitted. She knitted for my daughter, Capri. And, well, well, thank you. Thank you. I think she's cute, too. But so you got this, like, this knitted thing. And look, like, it's cool, and it's awesome, and it looks so difficult to make, but, like, it's imperfect, right? They're, 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 and why is it so much more beautiful to my wife, Lindsay, to knit this thing rather than to buy it? Well, here's why. It took her incredible time and care. Like, it actually mattered to her. Like, she, she wants the flaws. She wants the defects because there's character to it. Because she had involvement in it. And here, we're actually tapping into a theological thread in Scripture. L listen, there is never a point in Scripture where God sort of like haphazardly just poofs human beings into existence. You know that, right? Like, we, we, we study Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts off and God's speaking things that weren't there into existence, just boom, right? And that's pretty cool on its own because you're like, whoa, he's just zapping stuff through his words and the power of that. And so it's beautiful, but when he gets to humanity, it like stops and the rhythm breaks. 
God said it was good, and God, uh, God said, and it was, and it was good, and God said, and it was, it was good, and then it gets to humanities, and you get to Genesis 2, and it's like it stops, and instead of like speaking Adam into existence, he digs his hands, it says. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man from dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and became a living creature. You know what's going on there? There's purpose and dignity and importance. Like he's taking time and care to form us intimately. Like God actually takes his time with you. And in verse 15, um, there's a strange phrase, and I just wanted to point this out. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Now, notice this, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And you're like, wait, wait, we just went from like womb to like earth. And actually, scholars that are not Christian scholars who uh, study the scriptures, uh, they, they, everybody trips on this. Like, wh- what is going on here? Like, even in our English rendering of this passage. And it's almost a strange thing of why the depths of the earth um, feels like an, an aberration from the, the idea here. And what's going, so if you'd ask the like non-Christian scholars, which by the way, I'm like, why would like a non-Christian study this much scripture? I don't know. But um, they will say, well, there was like mother goddess God back in the contemporary period here. And so like, maybe this is like tapping into that, but there's actually just mixed world religions kind of blended in here because mother God. And so we got to get it in there somehow. There's actually no evidence of that, um, and I think better scholars actually dig into this, and they're like, no, 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 like, you have to go into the Jewish mind, and in the Jewish mind, like, all scriptures sort of weave together this one cohesive story of the Lord Yahweh, and what he's doing here in verse 15 is this is an allusion to the garden way that God made us, that he dug into the dirt, and we even study science, and, and you know, you look at that, and actually even the nutrients that make our bodies are from what? From soil that God is actually digging in. This is an allusion to the paradise, to the garden where God made us. And so God actually likes the way he made you. And this helps us understand um, one last thing as we conclude, is if he likes the way he made you, then the way he made you actually has a clue embedded in it for how then we should live our lives. And here's what we're gonna see in verse 16 is you were made for an assignment. You were made for an assignment. So all your quirks, all your flaws, all your weirdnesses, all your like strengths and all this stuff, like God actually is embedding something in there to indicate what you should do. Uh, look at verse 16. What does it say? It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in, and then this really weird phrase, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there were none of them. What is he talking about here? Well, the, the, the kind of word picture is that there's this document out there, and there, in this document are days that were formed for you. Now, do I think there's actually a document out floating in heaven somewhere, and it's like, wow, no one's going to say this, it's going to be a mistake, and like, I, I don't know that that's the point here. I think the point here is that like, God actually has a purpose for your life, that God wants to do some stuff through you. That's why later in Ephesians 2.10, uh, Paul writes this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, you are not made on accident for randomness. You are made on purpose for a specific assignment. 
You have work to do. There are things that you're wired with that you are created to do. And, and actually, if you're wondering, like, what are those things? I mean, I spend time with a lot of young adults, and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do for my job. I don't know what I'm going to do, where I'm going to live, all this stuff. Here's the deal. I said your design has implications for your direction. Uh, Jason referenced this booklet that's coming out next week and these wired groups that are going to go through them. Here's what I want you to, to see that actually we have a resource in here for you. That's gonna, uh, it's like this activity, Jason, man, that you walk through like, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the things that make me, me? Because in them, we get an indication for where should, we should go. And so um, God embedded you with clues for your calling. Let me just give you a few without going into detail on the book. Number one, your genetic wiring. Like your DNA like rigs you with some stuff, okay? And you should lean into that. Like some people are like, man, I'd prefer to work with my hands, but I feel like I need an office job. It's like, well, go work with your hands. Like you're made like that, right? Uh, your strengths, what are you actually good at? What, have, what skills have you developed? Maybe chase those things down, whether that's in your home, your, your church, your work, whatever it is, like use those things to the glory of God. Number three, your story, your story. I referenced Rana earlier who started breaking cycles. Man, her story lends itself to serving some certain kinds of people, yeah? Like there's some power to that. What have you gone through? Like what does that look like for you? Um, your personality. Uh, your personality actually, like I'm extroverted and optimistic. Maybe go into sales. Like I think you would do okay in sales. Ask people around you like, hey, when you look at me, what do you, what do you envision? Like, am I, am I in the right role? Like, am I using my strengths in the church in the right spot? All of this stuff. And then lastly, this is kind of a curious one. Even your weaknesses, even your weaknesses actually play a role in helping you understand where God might be aiming you in the direction that he might have intended for you. Um, I've shared this, but like I used to work for a company called Benchmade, and I was a knife sharpener. And uh, like, I was not super pumped about being a knife sharpener. I'm just gonna be honest. Like I, I just wasn't good at it. Like this was not my thing because here's the truth. Like knife sharpening is a lot of like, like, like you're using your hands. You're like, it's a, it's a craftsmanship thing. And like these don't, like these things, like they've never worked. They've never been good at anything. Like everything I touch like breaks, you know, like we we're trying to put tile up at my house and my wife's like, I can, I can do that for you. <laughs> like, like, let me see this. Like, I'm just not good with my hands, okay? Like, it's just, they're useless. It's an embarrassment. And when I was working at that place, I was an absolute loser, all right? Like, just not good at it. But here's the deal. Those weaknesses lend themselves to something because it doesn't mean that you gotta be bad at everything, right? Actually, I'll, I'll use this phrase that one author wrote. He said this, like, you're a loser at something. He says this, Jesus was the first world leader who inaugurated a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. That's, Jesus wants to come in alongside you and use you. And now hear this, this cultural mandate is an extension of the goodness of the garden, of the paradise, which is a picture of heaven, the garden city that we're all moving towards. Listen, you are invited to embrace your strengths and weaknesses, to be used as an instrument of God to advance the kingdom of heaven in our city. And so I would just invite you, consider these things and know that you were made on purpose for a purpose. Maybe this is number one. This is gonna be uh, the way you're used in your job, in your workplace. Maybe this is the way, number two, th that you're used in our church or number three, maybe this is the way that you bring heaven 
in our city as a whole, but whatever it is, like actually garden this place, actually press into these things and accomplish what God has set before you. Um, I, I, I've, this last year, the weirdest experience, this last two years through COVID, and I have talked to, and I wish I were exaggerating, multiple parents, both in this church and outside this church, who have a kid, uh, either teen or young adult, who has despaired of life itself in these last two years. I don't talk about this to make everyone sad on a Sunday or just draw emotions. I talk about this because these are actual people in our church and outside our church who have actual lives. Like their parents are, are, are coming to me. They're sharing these stories like, man, my, my kid is despairing of life. And often it's just that I don't feel useful. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know if I actually matter to anyone. And listen, today I want you to know some of you might actually be in that place saying, I don't know if I matter or if I'm significant in any shape or form. So what we learn from this text is that God is not done with you. He wants to use you. You matter. And he wants to advance his kingdom through you. Would you participate with him? Embrace that call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating us, for making us on purpose for a purpose. God, as we are considering where we might be most effective for your kingdom, I pray that you would begin to speak where I stop. But all this week, you'd be whispering things, ways that you want people to shift gears, whether that's in vocation or serving or the way they're being utilized at home, whatever it is, God. I pray that this week you might call some people into some new phases of life. Lord, others, I pray that you would affirm that you would just breathe life into whatever they're struggling with in their job or whatever to remind them that you have them there on purpose for a purpose. And lastly, God, if there are people in here who don't yet know you or haven't given their lives to you, that they would be ushered into this deep and near relationship that we can have with you, Jesus. Would you call these people to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen.